Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey guys, sorry, I hope you're still there. Hello, hello, hello. It is in fact Monday. What's the date? 18th. Monday 18th. (laughs) What's the month? May. What year is it? Oh, right, 2020. Um, (laughs) uh, What is that thing about hindsight being 2020? Well, then fuck hindsight. Excuse me, that was not exactly an... I mean, if it is 2020, then F it. Hello, you can tell I'm in a mood. It's... uh, Let's start over. Hi, it's May 18th. It's a Monday. The sun is kind of out. And uh, and we'll start up. We had a little Skype trouble, which is uh, the reason for our uh, late start. Um, but here we are, up and running. Hope some of you will be there live. Um, oh, God. Um, you know, I... No, don't do it. I'm talking to myself. Hang on. I I have been. Well, I'm just I'm going to be straightforward with you because I I tend to uh do that. Um I I have been feeling like really depressed. I mean, I I am by nature a depressive. I mean, so much so that I have uh I think I was one of the first to be on anti I've been on antidepressants for oh, almost 40 years might uh, and looking back you know at my childhood um if there had been antidepressants back then i would have done better you know so i am just i have like clearly maybe some kind of chemical imbalance something ain't right so that there is um my sort of default position is um uh, you know sort of this mild chronic depression and uh and uh under that a, a nice little tincture of uh, constant uh, anxiety so welcome to my world anyway um this what we're in now um has certainly added another layer onto that and you know some days i do better than others but of late i really have fallen into a a kind of uh, despondency, and it's harder and harder uh, for for me. And yet, this morning, I don't know why I'm saying this now because right now I feel very energized. Um, and I think it's because, in some respects, I've thrown caution to the wind. Um, the dog walker just came for the first time since this, and because I guess we're yellow and they can do it. And I wasn't sure. Do I let my dog go? Do I not? And I said, go, go for it. Because I think my dog's depressed too. You know, you, life as he knew it is over. He hasn't been able to sniff another dog's butt in three months or so. And, um, you know, I, I is life worth living if you can't smell someone's butt? Now, see, that's one of those questions taken out of context that would be a little difficult to uh, explain. 
anyway, um, there's that, and I have to go to a doctor's office today. There's that. And so there's part of me that is, um, I think, feeling very anxious because I'm doing these things that I have not yet done, each of which comes with uh, some risk. And I guess we're all going to be making these um, all going to be making these choices. And uh, I mean, we can stay holed up by ourselves uh, and not see. But a lot, most of you are not by yourself, right? I mean, that's another thing I've become very aware of. Um, as much of a loner as I do tend to be, uh, anxious depressives often are. Um, I, even I (laughs) can take just so much of my own company. And I do notice when I'm walking the dog, I hear people laughing together. And last night there was a group sitting on their front porch and having a hell of a good time. And I I remember, I, I just sort of felt like, I think this would be easier, wouldn't it, for most people if you've got somebody there to either annoy you or to comfort you or to do the things that uh, proximity to others uh, affords. So anyway, I'm just babbling off the top of my head. I'm also doing this waiting for this aura I am experiencing to clear. That's a visual disturbance that usually precedes a migraine headache. (laughs) But um, with me, I get the aura, but I don't get the headache anymore, which is wonderful. And the aura is almost done. It's this little, starts with a tight little circle of sparkles and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's almost out on the periphery now. It's hard for me to to, uh, read anything if I'm experiencing an aura. There, I've told you more about myself probably than I uh, meant to. Um, We got a caller. What is it, my psychiatrist? Uh, Okay, caller, go for it. Hey, Lynn, it's Mike in D.C. Mike in D.C., how are you? I'm well. So I've been trying to find a tactful time to bring this up because I don't want to disagree with you ever, obviously. Um, but when you were talking about the jogger and, but you brought it up earlier, um, but when you were talking about the jogger and what if they cough and they're not six feet away, um, what we learned in the AIDS pandemic was there's a difference between the health model, which is any risk is too much. Lock yourself in a room, uh, and avoid all possible risk. The other is harm reduction. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that a jogger running by you could give it to you? Yes, it's possible, maybe. Is it likely? So now that we're moving on to the next phase, that's the question I ask myself. How likely is it that the guy who just dropped off that UPS package is going to give it to me when he drops that package at the door? Mm -hmm. And then what's the risk of me leaving it at the door for a day? Right. Because the virus doesn't live on a box for more than a day. So it's the difference between the health model, which is any risk is too much risk, versus the harm reduction model. And I've been asking myself that all week 
of what's the likelihood that if my friend Darren comes over and sits on my deck six feet from me outside on a sunny day, what's the likelihood that I'm going to get it if he has it? Next to none. Right. And also what I learned from the AIDS pandemic was in order for Darren to give that to me, my friend, he would have to have it. Yeah. And that have to be a route of transmission for that to get to him from him to me. So it isn't just the inner, it isn't just the six feet thing. It's that that person has to have it. And what is their viral load? Right. And how sick are they? Right. So I'm not going to any amusement parks anytime soon, right. but I am asking myself questions of what's the likelihood right. that I will get this? You know, this is why you're everyone's favorite caller. <laughs> no, I'm not. But thank you. Yeah, well, you're a lot of people's favorite caller. That is such a helpful and coherent, um, you know, statement that you have you have made. And I have to tell you that I can't do the health model anymore. Constantly, I can't do it. It makes me anxious as holy hell because you can't be on that level of alert all the time. You know, oh my God, I was out. I did not wash my hands immediately when I came in. I rubbed my eye. You know, you could lose your mind trying to right. keep hold yourself to um, the, that level of uh, following the rules. And it's clear some people have to be there. They have to live that health model, I guess. Right. I can't. So for the rest of us, we can ask ourselves, like, so Sam wants to come over, or you want Sam to come over. He has. What, how can you? Re- <laughs> <laughs> he has. What What can you do to reduce the risk once he's there, if he were to have it? Now, in the ideal world, we could have him take his temperature, or even better yet, um, have um, a te- have him be tested. But healthy people are not going to be tested in our country anytime soon, unless you're in the White House. So what could you do to reduce that risk? And Susan said the other day, have him take off his clothes and take a shower. And honestly, that would reduce the risk a little. So it's the risk reduction concept that, is, um, that we learned during the AIDS pandemic. And for another example, it, HIV is in bodily fluids. So when I was teaching this stuff for the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center study, Someone said to me, so if someone was crying on my shoulder and I had an open wound on my shoulder, then I could get it. And I was like, well, yeah, I guess. But can we talk about the behaviors you do that put you at a much higher risk than somebody crying on your shoulder into an open wound? <laughs> Which is unlikely to happen. Right. So wh- where is it likely to occur? It's likely to occur in a theme park. Or it's likely to occur at church. It's likely to occur at all these other places because you're increasing the, the number of people you interact with. But people don't want to talk about that. They want to talk about the jogger who runs by and the smoke and the coughing, blah, 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 right. because I won't have to change. It's just something that's everywhere. Right. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> be well. I think I'm being a little reckless if you want to know the truth, but we all are going to tell me how, workers. how are you being? Reckless? No, I'm afraid to, I don't want to tell anybody. Well then whatever, whatever reason you're trying to be, whatever way you're being reckless, see if you can reduce the risk a little. Yeah. And that's the harm reduction model. 
Yeah. Oh, dear. Well, um, I have seen a number. I mean, like I'm taking my dog over to friend's backyard this afternoon so he can run with their dogs. I simply can't. I just, you know, it's my only chance to see other human beings and talk to them, too. Um, Are you uh, hugging them? No. Okay. See, you're already reducing your risk. So it isn't 100%, but not hugging them, being outside, you're reducing the risk little by little, assuming, again, that they even have the virus. Exactly. And they're very careful people, too. They're both working from home. They don't, yeah. No, I don't see a lot of risk there. But there have been other things I've done that I would say, hey, I don't know that that was so smart. But, you know, again, if it if I get the virus because I've done that, then I get the virus because I've done that. We each have these uh, choices to make, but I have to be able to live a little bit. I mean, I'm not a crazy person screaming, I need to get my hair cut. I need to go to the gym. Um, I just, uh, I can't live at this with this constant fear and anxiety. I've got to just relax a little bit. A little bit. And they say that 60% of us will get this. Yeah. Easy. 60 to 70. Yeah. Yeah. So the objective of us sheltering in place wasn't to stop those 60% from getting it. Slow it. It was to stop those 60% from getting it all at once. That's right. It was to slow it down. I agree. Right. I agree. And also that there is now a protocol for how to handle someone with symptoms. And two months ago, there was no protocol. And so that's really what we're waiting for is for them to figure that out and for a protocol to be set up to know what drugs are helpful and what drugs are not helpful because two months ago there wasn't any of that. We have that now. So if you do get it, for example, I just read an awesome article that said the previous protocol was for you to not go to the emergency room until you couldn't breathe. Right. But they found out that your oxygen levels were slowly decreasing when you began to get sick and didn't show symptoms and your lungs were overcompensating so that by the time you couldn't breathe, your lungs were so damaged, you were really in trouble. It was too late. Now the protocol is, is to find out what your oxygen level is before you can't breathe. And if it drops below 90% or 80%, then you then go to the emergency room. So well, how do you find out where your yeah? But how do you find out what your oxygen level is if you don't have one of those little oxygen levels? You buy one of those little oxygen. Are level they available or is it like uh-huh. is it like toilet paper? Nope, they're available on, on Amazon. I bought one for fifty four dollars. What are they called? And um, find my thing. Oxygen meter. Oxa something. Oxa. It's as little as my finger. I know, it's just something you put on your finger. Yeah, pulse oximeter, O-X-I-M-E-T-R. Yeah, yeah. So that when you have that, so when you are feeling well, um, you call your doctor and you can say, look, this is my oxygen level. And that's what they're finding out. They're coming up with the protocol of how to handle really sick people. And that's what we've been doing for the past two months when everybody was sitting at home. You know, I have to tell you, my oxygen uh, level is already um, reduced because I have my oxygen taken uh, 
when I get that asthma injection every month that I get and have not been getting, that's another risk uh, uh, aversion thing that I've decided. Anyway, my oxygen level is often at 97, which for most people would already be, you know, uh-oh. Yeah. Oh, mine is mine's 98. I'll do it right is now, it, but mine was 98 the other day. Say, what they say if it goes 90. below, if it go, I thought it was 92. Is it 90? Uh, the article I read said anything below not, uh, above 90, you're fine. But oh. that even gets back to getting this device before you get sick. Yeah. Because if you know yours is 97 typically, if it goes to 95, okay, exactly. Exactly. And if the doctor says, oh, my, it's whatever, you can say it's usually 97. Exactly right. Well, so I'm listen, the cheapest person well, yeah. on the planet. And if <laughs> I bought one of these... You should buy one. I will. I think you just sold a whole bunch of them. Hey, and I just want you to know that that Bill has written in saying, Mike is my favorite caller. And yeah, yeah. thank you so much. What a great call. Thank you. Bye. You you too. Bye-bye. So, you know what, Uh, Mike... uh, Mike lived through the horror of the AIDS uh, epidemic um, as a gay man, and he was quick to tell us all that he'd been where we are now because of being a gay man who lived through the horror of that unknown, unseen killer that was targeting him. Um, and I bring I bring that up again because someone else who um, lived through that, but who had an incredible impact on um, awareness of it and fighting back um, was Tom Sokolowski, who, as you know, was a a weekly contributor um, to this program for... um, I have no idea because time and me don't, um, well over a year. And as you know, Tom died. Um, It was a cardiac arrest uh, following an emergency surgery he had. Um, And I was wondering why I hadn't seen... um, the New York Times uh, honor Tom with a an obituary, and I really was stunned that it had not. And then yesterday, there it was in the Sunday New York Times, which is the best place you wanted if you want people to know about. Tom Sokolowski, because that has the Sunday Times has the biggest circulation of of any newspaper. And I want to share quite a bit of it with you. And uh, it is because in in reading it, I mean, I found myself in tears a lot because here is this guy that I knew, that I bantered with, that I 
made crazy. Um, and I don't know, after having read this, I felt like I did not treat him with the respect he deserved. And that might just, I don't know. But let me share some of this with you. I'm looking at some wonderful pictures of Tom, and there he is. Um, The headline in the Times obit is Thomas Sokolowski, 70, who put art in the service of AIDS activism, dies. Um, I'll skip over some of this. He was... He's an only child, born in Chicago. His father was a house painter. His mother, a secretary. In 1984, this was the big job he had that uh, that that put him in a position, well, to do the amazing work he did in his career. He became director of um, NYU's Gray Art Gallery. And he stayed there for 12 years until he came to Pittsburgh. And I'll just say what uh, Holland Carter, Cotter, excuse me, who wrote this incredible obit says. Under his leadership, the Gray began to engage with cultural globalism long before that notion had entered mainstream art world consciousness. In other words, Tom did in New York City something that no one in New York City's art community had done. He broadened the perspective of that hugely important community. Back to the obit, his 1985 exhibition, Contemporary Indian Art, introduced a New York audience to work that was at the time all but unknown to it. Mr. Sokolowski, it says parenthetically, who had a sharp, often raucous wit and did not shy from hyperbole, would later claim that the show was up for two months and didn't have a single visitor. Obviously, the fact that Cotter says claimed, that's not true, but it was sparsely attended, perhaps. One can just imagine Tom saying, it was up for two months and not a single visitor. Because he was heading into territory, no one had had the courage the foresight to do. Then in 1989, he had an exhibition called Against Nature, Japanese art in the 80s. And again, he opened territory that had been left pretty much unexplored in New York museums. Um, and, And again and again, he pushing the envelope in New York, this upstart young kid from Chicago, And then I want to read this. 
always responsive to the communities in which he worked. Mr. Sokolowski, who was gay, became involved in addressing the AIDS crisis organizationally. The Gray Art Gallery presented some of the first AIDS-themed exhibitions anywhere in the world. In 1994, Sokolowski and the Village Voice art writer Robert Atkins organized a group show from media to metaphor, one of the most widely seen AIDS-themed shows of the day. It was carried in 10 museums. Sokolowski was a passionate participant in broader AIDS activism in 1988. You know, and stop and think about this. While Tom's doing this, he's living in terror, the state of terror that all gay men were living in at the time. He's living in terror with this invisible killer that is killing his friends left and right. And Tom acts. In 1988, with the number of HIV infections soaring in New York City, he convened a meeting with three associates. And out of that meeting came the concept of visual aids. Think of that wonderful pun. Visual aids. And out of that came the idea of a day without art, which proposed that one day a year, December 1st, museums, galleries, would either close entirely or remove works from view or in some way draw attention to the AIDS crisis. He told this story uh, once um, on the show. And I remember as I listened to him explain how they sat around his kitchen table and they came up with these ideas. And I'm sitting there looking at him and thinking, wow. I mean, wow. And it wasn't like he was telling it like, and you know what I did? It wasn't the, I mean, he'd been on the show for months and months and months. He'd never said it. I didn't know it. He was not in any way self-aggrandizing, in any way. When it came to art without, out with, with it, Excuse me. <laughs> a day without art. Um, Tom said he was put in charge of the public relations and marketing. And he said in, in the obit, he's quoted as saying, I just started calling people around the country. And by the end of the year, he had gotten 685 institutions, big ones and little ones to participate. The first day without art was 1989. A year later, Visual Aids organized Night Without Light. Buildings, marquees in uh, Manhattan turned off their lights for 15 minutes. 
And then visual aids introduced the red ribbon project. Remember, everybody wore that red ribbon loop. That came from Tom. It became an international phenomenon. And in New York, Tom made sure that the visual aids uh, ribbons were produced by homeless women living in the Park Avenue Armory Women's Shelter. He's quoted in this obituary as saying, visual aids is the most important thing I have ever done. He came to Pittsburgh in 96 to become head of the Warhol. It was then just two years old, had been through two directors, and was obviously flailing around. They wisely hired Tom. And he stayed and stayed and stayed. The obit says he transformed it into both an international attraction and a local community center. His primary mandate was to conserve and promote the work of Andy Warhol, and he did so. He took Warhol's work to some 49 countries. He also included topical political exhibitions, which brought the Warhol national notice. And they were always pushing the envelope. We know it. You'll recall he did one on lynching photography in America. He did one on Abu Ghraib, the inconvenient evidence. That was in 2004. And I'll read just the last paragraph because it is so classic. The museum had no trouble drawing young artists and students with some older citizens of Pittsburgh for whom art museums were remote, highfalutin places. Sokolowski had a tougher sell. Speaking to the Pittsburgh City paper, in 2010, Mr. Sokolowski recalled attending <laughs> Rotary Club events in Pittsburgh. I can no more imagine. So Tom would make the rounds of Rotary Club events, trying to promote the Warhol. I can't think of a more unlikely fit. And when his resignation from the Warhol was announced, he recalled, someone wrote on Facebook, oh, he was so snobbish. And Tom says this, I felt like saying, honey, you've never called numbers at a bingo game at the age of 47. That is so, Tom. So he got his due. He got this huge Sunday obituary. And 
I don't know. I'm going to start crying again. I'm going to try not to. Okay. Um, and it's sad. You know, he's an only child. And he has no survivors. No blood survivors. He had no family. So... Um, Gigi writes, you can get pulse oximeters online now. I have asthma, so I picked one up a while ago. You can monitor yourself and see what is normal for you. Yeah, I have a, you know, a, this thing that they give you when you have asthma called a peak flow meter that you breathe into and it shows how much oxygen you have. And I've been sort of keeping an eye on what my normal is for that. So I would notice the downturn, but I think an oximeter would be better. <laughs> Uh, and Gigi agrees. I've read that if your level goes below 92, you should call the doctor. And she says, I'm with you. I've been easing up a little bit in the past two weeks. I've been, I've gone hiking in the mountains twice. That's not easing. Who wouldn't go hiking in the mountains? I mean, see, I've been outside a lot. I've been walking around. And if I'm outside, I'm not always wearing a mask because, damn it, I can't breathe when I walk. That's part of the asthma, too. I have enough trouble on Pittsburgh's hills. And if, I, if no one's around, why should I have a mask on? And Gigi says, I no longer flinch and hide when I see other people. Enjoy the glorious day. Thank you, dear, and you, too. Um, little Tony says that obit was not on the online edition. How could that be? It was the biggest obit in the in the paper yesterday. In the print edition, how would it not be online? Uh, well. Um, did I see Graham Nash on Sunday morning? No. It's almost impossible to hear live music in New York right now, but Graham Nash gave us a little taste in the garden of St. Mark's Church with a song he wrote and recorded with Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young back in 1970. It's from Teacher Chill. Oh, so this is... You who are on the road must have a code that you can live by. And so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. Yeah, that's good. Thank you for that. Um, well... I, um, you know, I, I, I did ask, uh, what the hell this Obamagate thing is. Of course, it's nothing. It's bullshit. And, um, it also shows how Trump is going to run and a big shocker here. He's going to lie, 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 lie. He's going to make stuff up. And our media, because they've been taught that you have to report stuff, are going to spread it. 
exactly how he got elected in 2016. Um, but the best explanation I saw of what Obamagate is in a little concise tweet is from David Axelrod, who, as you know, was pretty much the brains behind the Obama victory in 2008. And Axelrod says this, this is what Obamagate is. So uh, Barack Obama advised Donald Trump not to hire Flynn as national security advisor. Trump ignored the advice. Flynn proceeded to lie to the FBI and to the vice president about his call with the Russian ambassador for which Trump fired Flynn and Flynn pleaded guilty. And this is now Obamagate. This is Obama's fault. Obama warned Trump in that famous meeting you see of the two of them when Trump came to the Oval Office for the first time and sat there with Trump with the, with Obama and Obama told him hey we got I, I know Flynn's in your in your campaign as your advisor but we've got um, some troubling information on him and I really need to warn you about it that was because they had unmasked Flynn and knew it was he who was the person trying to help the Russians avoid the sanctions that Obama had placed on them because of their interference in the election. Trump, of course, didn't listen to him. He hires Flynn. What, Flynn lasted for a second or two? Ended up perjuring himself ended up lying to the vice president, which was a big sin, apparently, and is fired by oh, by Trump. And now this is Obama's fault. So just so you understand, that's what it is. Um, Amy, our, our producer, has found uh, Tom's obit, and she's posting it on um, our Facebook page, okay, so that you can see the whole thing. Um, and yes, Laura says it is online and she has it. So a lot of you sending it to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, here's a little troublesome little thing, little item I saw and I don't see it says here that 13 sailors aboard the virus-stricken aircraft carrier, the Theodore Roosevelt, who had recovered from COVID-19 and then had tested negative more than once, were returned to the ship to continue their jobs. And they have now retested positive. What the hell does that mean? Either the tests don't work 
or it doesn't give you immunity, you can get it a second time. That's a little unsettling. I find myself avoiding unsettling things. Um, I don't want to know anymore that's going to make me crazy. Um, uh, because, as I said, I cannot be at any more uh, of a, a state of alert than I am now, and I'm fang- frankly starting to flag a little on the state of alert I was in initially. Um, must be human. And uh, maybe I'll bear the price of it, but I, I just, whatever, we'll all make our, make our beds and we'll lie in them, Right? Uh, there was an interesting little thing that has nothing to do with anything that we're talking about that I saw also in the New York Times yesterday. And um, what caught my eye was a picture of a letter that Amelia Earhart, the aviator, I won't say aviatrix, which is what they call a woman who did this exact same thing the men were doing and more, Amelia Earhart, it's written on her stationery, so it says Amelia Earhart at the top, and she gives her very, just like you learned how to do it in school, (laughs) it gives her address, and it says 28 June 1932. And she's writing the publisher of the New York Times, Arthur Salzberger. And This is typed. She typed it. It says, Dear Mr. Salzberger, may I make a request of the times through you? Despite the mild expression of my wishes and those of my husband, I am constantly referred to when the times mentions me as Mrs. George Putnam. I admit I have no principle to uphold in asking that I be called by my professional name, which is her name, Amelia <laughs> However, it is for many reasons more convenient for both of us to be simply Amelia Earhart. After all, I believe Flyers, that's what she called herself, flyers should be permitted the same privileges as writers or actresses. She's saying, that's my professional name. He granted her wish. I mean, if you were reading an article back in the day about Mrs. Putnam, you wouldn't know. Who who would even know that was Amelia Earhart? But it brings up this craziness of women's very identities literally being subsumed by their husbands. And... It brings to mind uh, one time when I was home in Green Bay and I was going through um, 
photo albums. And there were a number of, you know, uh, clippings from newspapers uh, where my mother was pictured. She was a beautiful woman. And in most cases, she's, uh, well, this is how they covered women. It's, um, she'd be seen with another woman and they were having a, a tea to benefit who knows what. And my mother would be identified as Mrs. Norman Miller and the others by their husband's name. So their names, they're very even, they wouldn't even get their first name. And this shows the, to me, the, the, not only the cruelty, but, but also, I mean, to me, it is, well, I felt it viscerally when I married. Um, that was in 90, excuse me, that was in 72. <laughs> I was married in 1972. And upon saying, I do, I ceased to be who I had been for my entire life, which was Lynn Miller. She disappeared. And I didn't, thank God, things like, I wasn't just Mrs. Lee Cullen. I was Lynn Cullen. But I didn't know who the hell Lynn Cullen was. I'd never even written it. I lost myself. And I have to tell you, I had no idea that it would prove to be so difficult for me to come to terms with. I felt almost as if an act of violence had been perpetrated on me. I'd been snuffed out. Never thought of myself. And what's so funny, of course, and I'm sure you're thinking this, and now here I am still, unmarried, and yet I'm Lynn Cullen. Lynn Miller never returned. And again, it was for the same reasons Amelia Earhart gave. By the time I divorced, I had established a career and a public persona as Lynn Cullen. And I guess I could have chosen to go back, but then I was Lynn Cullen. And I thought, I mean, I did. Also, it sounded better <laughs> as a as a name, Lynn Cullen. It had some Lynn Moore is just sort of. So I kept it, but that, you know, it is a kind of violence that was done to women. I don't know that all women felt that, but I did. And uh, the Times printed the Amelia Earhart letter because they were going through uh, the gazillions of photos they have in their archives. Um, and these younger people who didn't live back when this happened were stunned when they saw this 
that Frida Kahlo wasn't Frida Kahlo in the New York Times. She was Mrs. Diego Rivera. And June Carter Cash was Mrs. Johnny Cash. And even even the First Lady of the United States lost her name. It was Mrs. John Kennedy and Mrs. Frank Sinatra. And nobody had, no woman had their own name. None of this would ever occur to a guy because you didn't have your identities taken from you. And it is an act of violence. It was only in the 19th century here that this crap started where a woman was known as Mrs. Her Husband. And it started with a bunch of rich women who wanted to be called that because their husbands had power. And so if they were Mrs. Power Guy, then they had power. And it is, in fact, why women still to this day often take the male point of view, their husband's point of view, their husband's, because it was the husband who always had the power, and consequently, if women wanted power, they subsumed themselves. I mean, some pushback. The suffragist Lucy Stone refused to take her husband's name, Henry Blackwell, when she married in 1855. And she explained it to him. He didn't have a problem with it. She explained it to him by saying, my name is my identity and must not be lost. Well, Just a little blast from the past there for you. Um, And while we're on the subject of women, (laughs) this has been mentioned before, but it got mentioned again this weekend. And so I will mention it again. All those women over all those millennia who were subsumed, lost, held down, held back, deprived of, The injury, of course, was to them, (coughs) but the injury was to the world, to all of us. Where would we be now if the full complement of humanity, not just white men, if the full complement of humanity had been allowed to flourish? to be educated, to have any job that they were capable of. The loss is ours. And so somebody looked into this thing that I did bring up before, but I'm bringing it up again. How come the nations 
led by women seem to be doing better. New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. They haven't had a case, a positive case of COVID in weeks. Countries led by women do seem to be particularly successful in fighting the coronavirus. Now, why the hell is that? Germany, led by Angela Merkel, has had a far lower death rate than Britain, France, Italy, or Spain. Finland, where Prime Minister Sanna Marin, 34 years old, governs with a coalition of four other women-led parties, has had fewer than 10% as many deaths as nearby Sweden. And the woman who heads Taiwan has presided over one of the most successful efforts in the world to contain the virus without a full national lockdown. And so here's what they think it is. Women are used to listening. It's not a skill that is unknown to them. Women know humility. Leaders with the humility to listen to outside voices are going to be more successful in a crisis. And for, for a country to have elected a female leader, it also says that that country is made up of people who are not worried about diversity and that thus are willing to bring in different perspectives. If you look at male-led governments, Trump's, Boris Johnson's, Sweden, all of these countries have had high coronavirus death tolls. Those guys have listened not to the experts, not to the epidemiologists. They have listened to their own advisors, and they have not brooked dissent. People are dying and will continue to die in America because Americans still have this idea, this, this image in their heads that a strong leader is, first of all, a man, and secondly, he acts aggressively. He shows no fear. He projects power. Yeah, well, we got one of those. He conforms to the swaggering ideal of what a leader is. Well, we got us one of those, don't we?
and we're dying. I'll leave with uh, this. There will likely be more crises arising for the world out of extreme weather, other natural disasters, Hurricanes, forest fires can't be intimidated into surrender. Someone please tell that to Donald Trump any more than a virus can. Any more than climate change can. And unless America wises up to what real leadership looks like, we are not going to do any better in the next crises. Gigi says, I've been married twice and kept my name both times and didn't ask either partner to change his name. Good for you. The first time I married, I was only 20. I remember going to the bank where at that time it was like visiting relatives and the teller looked at my deposit slip and said, honey, this isn't your name. I was confused, and she explained, you got married. You have a different name now. I told her she was wrong, but she insisted that it was the law. Yes, it was the law. You get married, you disappear. Violence. I'm telling you, violence. Oh, dear. Okay, the Allegheny County numbers are out. I don't even pay attention from day to day, so I do... Oh, uh, let's see. Uh, of the newly reported cases, 14 are associated with long-term care facilities. Man. Of the 1,641 cases, wow, 235 are in healthcare workers. That's 14% of the cases in Allegheny County. 14% of the cases are people who are healthcare providers. Wow. Wow. And you understand that us being careful and doing the harm reduction that Mike was telling us about is not even so much about protecting ourselves. It's about protecting those poor people, these wonderful nurses, doctors, orderlies, sanitation people, the front, all these people who are on the front lines being exposed they don't need any more people coming in. Saying. And for some reason in Allegheny County, more women. Maybe that has to do with health care. It's more nurses or something. Nurses and phlebotomists and 
you know, uh, respiration therapists. Those are overwhelmingly female positions. Uh, 54% and a little bit more, 54% of the cases in Allegheny County are women. Wow. Well, guys, I think I sort of almost did a an hour, not quite. Let me just read you one thing from... Um, this is from uh, a senior in high school in uh, Massachusetts, Madison Sherman. And I don't know if Mad- Madison would be a girl, probably. Uh, she sent this to, um, it could be a boy. They sent this to their fellow graduates. I didn't mention anything about Obama's graduation address and all that kind of stuff, but um, there's still tomorrow. She says this, and it's so true. Think of these kids. They're 18 years old, generally. She wrote, it feels selfish to say this when people are dying, but I know the class of 2020 is hurting. We entered the world in the shadow of 9-11, We began elementary school as an economic recession took hold. We graduated from elementary school after the Boston Marathon bombings. We graduated from middle school at a time when our political climate was nothing but a battlefield. We entered high school when school shootings continued to be a truly terrifying threat. So... It's only fitting that we will leave behind an entire chapter of our lives in the middle of a worldwide pandemic. Here's to the class of 2020. Everything we have accomplished and everything we will achieve. They will be unlike any other because she points out that they have been tempered by reality. And the world they grew up in bears little resemblance to the world I grew up in. I grew up in a world where no one shot anybody at school. People didn't bomb marathons. The economy was generally hunky-dory. Our political discourse was extraordinarily civil compared to where it is now. Hmm. Well, (laughs) that's it. Anyway, guys, uh, thank you. Practice harm reduction. We all are individuals and have our own comfort zones. Some of us are going to take greater risk. But remember, it ain't about you. Remember, it ain't about you. And go and enjoy this beautiful day. Wow. 
Okay, I'll talk to you tomorrow. Bye. Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.